and welcome to the R Obscure Media Podcast. Or, no, wait, this is The Goods. <laughs> and I'm Brian. And Dan's here, too. Hey, Brian. Hey, we are in the midst of our Movies About Making Movies theme month. And I've brought something else to discuss. Two movies, in fact. Yeah, something a little different. I had heard of this, but didn't really know too much about it. I mean, I guess I kind of did know about it because it's self-descriptive. Like once you've described the thing, you know what the thing is. But anyways, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself here. Why don't, why don't you lead us in? No, no. It's the kind of thing that you can go a while after knowing what it is before you actually find it and consume it. Because the film du jour is Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Adaptation which was a shot-for-shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, made throughout pretty much the entirety of the 1980s by a group of teenagers. So it spanned from the summers of 1982 to 1989, over the course of which they went from being like 11 to 18. Which is a big span. Like you're, An 11-year-old is very different from an 18-year-old in a lot of ways. Yes. But a couple of things made me realize that this was the, the right time to discuss this project. And it's coming off the heels of my last selection, which was Super 8, about teens making movies in, I guess in that case it was 1979, but not too far removed from 1982. And of course, that very much channeling Steven Spielberg. But also... We had an Indiana Jones come out this year. Yeah. The first one in, what, 15 years? (laughs) It's been a while. And Dan and I both went and saw it at the Udvar Hazi IMAX screen. And worth noting that the one before that, it was like 15 years at least since the one before that. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think in that case it may have even been 18 or 19 years. But... I definitely am a fan of at least the first three films in the Indiana Jones franchise. I think it's left an impact on me, and I think the same can be said for you, Dan. Yeah, so I discovered them when I was about probably upper teenage years. I I might or might not have actually seen any of them all the way through before college, Um, but I saw them very early in college, if that was the case, and immediately latched onto them. And like watch them a bunch of times. And that was right around the time my taste in movies was really forming. So they have remained favorites. I had two of the trilogy in my top 100 movies. And I think you had all three, Brian, when we did our, our top 100 movies list about at this point uh, a few months ago. That's right. 
Yeah, and I had Raiders as my number two favorite movie. Wow, it was number two. Yep. Yeah, way up there for me. And I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time, I think, when I was eight. My dad rented it. And it kind of scared me. It's like, it's it's intense at points. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of corpses springing out of walls and stuff. I mean, and then there's the ending. Yeah, then like 18 months later, probably, when I was nine going on 10 or, or 10 and a half or something, I, I saw Doom and then Crusade. But, okay. Like, I, I saw one of the other ones, and then I, like, came across a, a cassette recorded off TV or something that had the other one. And I, I wasn't, I didn't really have a concept that there was more than the one. And I kind of happened across the other two without, you know, this was in the early days of the internet. And just wasn't really conscious of how many of these things there were. But when I found that Last Crusade, I was like, oh, another one. <laughs> And so from pretty early on, I've I've liked these movies. Um, I mean, they, they got a lot of qualities to them that are pretty exceptional. Even just the John Williams score. I mean, the John Williams score, you put that on a movie and it's going to elevate it by like an order of magnitude. Like something like Hook, I love. And I feel like a lot of that hinges on the Williams music. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. I think that... Williams really brought film scores to a new level in the 70s and then early 80s. I mean, I think Star Wars is probably the greatest achievement in orchestral score history, just in terms of how it totally defines that. But I would put Raiders of the Lost Ark like not too far behind that for doing very similar things that it did with Star Wars. And I think that... We can maybe talk a little bit more about it, but once you get to the adaptation itself, it's a very good demonstration of just how powerful John Williams' score is. Definitely. Yeah, we were talking about that in our G-chat. And, I mean, other reasons that the Indiana Jones trilogy especially sticks out to me, you've got that genre mix where it's it's action-adventure but tinged with fantasy horror always it's got like an element of magic that comes out towards the end mm -hmm. like they almost want you to forget when the movie starts out that it's there but you always got to have it seep in and, and then at the climax somebody gets evaporated by the power of god or something and also i love the effects which are largely practical with like the earliest digital as usually used for compositing or something like when the guy ages to dust in crusade, you know, it's like, it's like blend to practical elements. Yeah. I think it hits just the right sweet spot in terms of being not just like all digital fake. So I think when you get to the fourth Indiana Jones, I think that one suffers from too much CGI. But the first three, I think they're just the right blend because there's kind of a gee whiz factor to it where it's like, it looks totally not quite real, but sort of real, but like has this kind of, this slight air of artificiality to it that just makes it feel like you're immersed in this crazy adventure sort of. 
but it never loses its sense of being this tactile thing. It's not like I'm all of a sudden watching a video game cutscene. So, because we don't want like real gore in this kind of movie. You know, it's not. This is a this is a lightweight adventure movie, but it still does have some. It needs to have some heft to it, I guess, and I think it strikes the right balance. Yeah, I agree. I also would recommend to listeners the documentary about the history of industrial light and magic on Disney Plus. I think it's just called Light and Magic, but it was like eight hours long and is really good. Like lots of behind the scenes footage. They show how they um, imploded the house at the end of Poltergeist by it's like a dollhouse and they have this spider web of like fishing line connected to all the all the edges of the house and then they yanked the strings through a little hole and it like caused the caused the house to collapse in and sucked through this little tiny opening uh and just stuff like that for all the iconic movies that they made and yeah i mean lucasfilm was behind more technological innovation than i even realized because of course like pixar was a wing of lucasfilm for one but then also they invented this thing called Edit Droid, which was like the very first nonlinear editor. Oh, interesting. I never knew that. No. Lucas really is a seminal figure in the history of cinema in so many different ways. And we think about it largely in terms of the blockbuster concept, which he and Spielberg kind of get dual credit for inventing in the 70s. But I mean, I think I haven't seen that documentary, but it'd be interesting to make the case that it's just as much in the technical stuff that he and his team really innovated, even beyond the business and uh, marketing and content side and all that. Absolutely. I was wondering, Dan, would you be game for just a rapid fire rundown rating of the Indiana Jones franchise? Absolutely. Let's do it. So kicking it off with Raiders, what are your thoughts? For me, this is one of my favorite movies. I think I had it at something like number, I don't even know. It was in my top 20 or top 15. Just a masterpiece. One of the most exciting adventure films ever made. Perfect opening 12 minutes with all of the stuff you think of about what Indiana Jones is. And what I really love about the opening is that it teaches you how to watch Indiana Jones movies. It teaches you what's important and how he thinks and the pacing of the movie that then gets expanded out and makes every subsequent thing work just better. And then the just unprecedented editing and just technical craft of making all of the action scenes so visceral and exciting and intuitive. Um, and then, you know, everything that you said about what just makes it fun. It's great adventure, great characters, great quips zippy pace despite being almost two hours toward a good eight out of eight for me awesome i give this one an eight two it just established so much of what works for the franchise it takes the hallmarks of the like 40s action serials that lucas and spielberg were into and brings it into the modern age with the cutting technology of the time uh and yet also manages to feel pretty timeless it's just an amalgamation of a lot of parts that, that fit together seamlessly. And yeah, great action sequences that flow A to B to C. It's really clear that they like storyboarded everything out. 
you know, the basket chase and the car chase and the airplane chase. And it's this thing is just always changing hands. Yeah. And then one last bit on Raiders before we move on is that I think the final shot is terrific. Oh, that's the other thing I wanted to say is you said great opening. I would put this down as like top five, not only opening, but also ending. I'm there with you. The, to me, the final shot is like a perfect metaphor on the power of cinema. I think you and I have talked about this and you kind of crystallized it for me. So I'll let you go ahead and, and make the case for it, Brian. Okay. Well, if you knew to Raiders of the Lost Ark... Finally, by the end, Indiana Jones has taken possession of this arc, kind of through no agency of his own. Everybody else who was touching it died, and, and he's kind of left holding the bag. But he gets to take it home. It's like the only thing in the whole series he gets to bring home with him. Uh, and then the government takes it away. And he's kind of miffed, and just has to go off empty-handed. And they say, don't worry, it's being handled by top men. And then in the final shot, we see the crate it's been carried around in getting nailed shut and pushed off into some back aisle of a huge warehouse by a worker on like a dolly cart. And he shoves it back in this back corner as the camera pulls back and you see there's just 10 million identical crates all stacked up to the rafters in this cosmically large space which of course suggests wordlessly that this is just one of an infinite number of mysteries that we could explore should we return to this world. Or just in the medium of cinema in general, you know. But yeah, great one. One of the all-time greats. What about Temple of Doom from 1984? This is a film I get higher on every time I watch it. Um, I think it's a... Easily the most divisive, unless you maybe want to count the fourth Indiana Jones. But I mean, this one, it totally does a table flip to the formula that's kind of set up by the first Indiana Jones. Some of the things that you would expect to be there aren't there. They would return in the third movie. But just by being so different, I think it has a freshness to it. And I think also that tonally, it tries some really new and different stuff. It kind of suggests that you could tell Indiana Jones stories that aren't always in the same formula, that don't start at the university, and then he goes out and looks for a religious artifact, and then he kind of inadvertently gets it at the end, but then it, there's a bittersweet, he doesn't quite get it. It's like, that doesn't need to be every single Indiana Jones, because this one is just something totally different. He gets poisoned at the beginning, and then he's gets abducted and then brainwashed and turns evil, and he's eating weird stuff and getting gross stuff crawling on him. And instead of Marion, it's uh, this woman named Willie who's like the most shrill and annoying character you have. And it's just completely over the top, just doing all sorts of gnarly shit left and right. And I love it just because it's, first of all, the craft. Honestly, parts of the craft are like more adventurous and interesting to me than even Raiders. Like some of the stuff it's doing once it gets in the actual temple with like there's like a mine cart chase and all this other stuff. R really brilliant film. And I just like how it's like the fever dream version of all the gross and weird stuff in Indiana Jones. For me, this is an exceptionally good and it's in the upper half of exceptionally good. It is a little bit annoying 
and I just can't quite give it the masterpiece label because there's some stuff that's like intentionally or maybe not intentionally off-putting. And I am happy to ignore how racist it is because I think it knows it is and is being playful with it. Like we're one shot, they're supposed to be in China. And then the next shot, they're like in an Indian jungle. And it's kind of kind of wacky. But uh, anyways, I, I think it's a terrific film. And I think it's easily, for me at least, the second best in the, the series. So I did a rewatch of the series earlier this year for the first time in a while. And yeah, this one was a little bit better to me than it had been in the past. I used to find it kind of annoying. It definitely didn't get the heavy rotation that one and three would, but I just appreciated it more now. Uh, again, excellent music. I love all the little new light motifs that John Williams introduces. Um, and, and yeah, some great set pieces. And just the idea that Indiana Jones can have adventures other places. You know, he, he's a globetrotter. He could be anywhere. And it it changes up the mise-en-scene. He doesn't have to be in the desert. So it, the jungle, it works. is a great, great venue. And eating bugs, monkey brains, great, memorable. Culturally insensitive, perhaps. Yeah, the minecart, very cool. So seven, if I didn't say. Exceptionally good. So, so far, we're a match. Oh, the other thing about Temple of Doom, and you touched on this, this time it really struck me how he just continually stumbles through the movie. It's like, no choices that he's making is leading him up, up through like the first third of the movie. It's like he gets on the plane that dumps him on the mountain, that dumps him in the jungle... And then he's like, okay, we got to get out of this. And they go to meet the people at what turns out to be the Temple of Doom. And it's not until finally he makes the decision that he's like going to save the slave children that he's he's starting to guide things. And as with the fourth one that we'll get to soon, I kind of want to like go down through the movie and just have like a little checklist of like this, don't like this. <laughs> and then and tot it up, tally it up at the end. And, and have a definitive uh, judgment. So maybe someday I'll do something like that. But yeah, I, I like it. Kate Capshaw plays Willie, the, the love interest. Notable. First of all, I, I really appreciated this time through that she is the butt of all the jokes and gets like messy, gets her hands dirty with the gross stuff and bugs on her and all that. And she is Steven Spielberg's wife since 1991. So... Despite him putting her through all of the uh, disgusting stuff of Temple of Doom, humiliating stuff, uh, she married him. So. Oh, yeah, I think it was a test, you know? <laughs> it's like if if she'll let you put barrier in bugs, that's a ride-or-die homie right there. <laughs> Kate Capshaw, ride-or-die homie. And so what about Last Crusade? The final chapter for a while, it's got last in the name. Yeah. Uh, so my opinion is it's a it's a terrific closer for a trilogy. Like Indiana Jones, we kind of talked about it, doesn't need to be a trilogy. It could be an adventure of the week every week, you know. And there is the Young Indiana Jones series, which I haven't seen, but we've talked about. It, and it's something like 22 made-for-TV movies. And I think that's the spirit of Indiana Jones, is you could do all sorts of eras and artifacts and cultures and adventures and it would work because he's just an adventurer you know 
nonetheless, this does make it feel like a proper trilogy. And I think it it has a little bit of diminishing returns by basically just aping Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, it almost feels lazy that you're doing the Holy Grail because that's the other big Christian artifact. And it, it really feels like it's more in the formula of Raiders. It's also much more comedy focused. It's jokier. But where I think it, it's strong is, first of all, like the, the last half hour is absolutely terrific. There's a tank chase. And I think from the tank chase on, the movie is a masterpiece. There, I think some of the middle act drags a little bit. But well, what really sets it apart, and this is obviously the thing that most people think of when they think of Temple of Doom, is they cast Sean Connery as as Harrison Ford's dad, which like maybe doesn't make sense from a genetic level. I don't know how much they look alike. And I don't think the difference in accent is ever explained, but um, man, is their chemistry terrific. And when they're both on screen together, the movie is absolutely phenomenal. And it just makes you feel good at the end of the movie um, that you've been through this, this grand adventure with both of them with some really cool stuff when they're closing in on the grail and, a little more filler for me, but overall still outstanding. And this is a lower seven for me, exceptionally good than Temple of Doom, but it's still exceptionally good for me. So um, I, I, I do love Temple of Doom. I don't have it on my top 100, but if we expanded it out to 150, it would probably be there. And pretty much exactly what you're saying was what I was feeling this time around watching it, that it does feel like it's trying to capture Raiders of the Lost Ark's bottled magic again, just copying beat for beat. Like, it's in the desert again. Marcus and Sulla are back. I, I don't know. I, this this movie has an energy, and it's easily a seven. Uh, the gap between it and Temple of Doom has narrowed for me, but I still might edge this one just ahead. It just, it really feels like it has a reverence. Like, there is magic in the world. There is some greater presence. Whenever Sean Connery talks about the book and how he's devoted his life to studying the Grail, and he has all these, like, little paintings and medieval manuscripts all over his office. Like, this is what he's devoted his whole life to. I believe it. I buy it. And it... You know, that the, the real treasure, though, Dan, is the, the father and son bond. And that's what he comes away with at the end when he when he puts the grail aside. Also really stupid that you can't take the grail out of that room. <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense. It makes you live forever, but only in that one room. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, a paradox. It's what life itself is, is you, you can't you can't really live forever and anyone who tries to craft their own immortality is going to be disconnected from everything around them. It's like the same thing in Toy Story 2 when Woody has to decide between being behind a, a glass wall in Japan or whatever country it is that Al's toy barn is threatening to send him off to. Um, or he could go and be with Andy and and be immortal, but be loved and have meaning in that life. So... I don't know. It is a little weird from like a world building perspective, but I think it, it aligns thematically with the movie. The Kanichi Toy Museum in Tokyo. That's in <laughs> Japan. 
I love Toy Story 2. I could watch, I could close my eyes and watch Toy Story 2 in my head right now. <laughs> oh, one other thing. I've watched some of the young Indiana Jones adventures that they put up on Disney Plus in addition to all the other stuff to hype the new movie. And it does kind of explain that the father was like an Oxford professor. And that's, he was like, you know, traveling, doing the academic circuit. And that's kind of how he became established in American academia. So a little bit of explanation, perhaps, for the accent. Okay, yeah. Okay, then things were dormant for a while. I will say, uh, so I had seen all three of the Indiana Jones films by, like, late 1999, and that year there was a VHS release. And I picked this up. I probably got it for Christmas at the end of 1999, this this box set. And I watched at least one of these probably every week for like the next year or two. Wow. Definitely heavier rotation for Raiders and Crusade, but Temple of Doom had a healthy presence as well. And at the end of each of these tapes... There was an interview with Lucas or Spielberg talking about the making of the film. And then the Last Crusade tape ends. And at the end of the interview, Spielberg says, and we're working on number four. And so for about six or seven years, I was waiting to hear more about, okay, what's number four? What's it going to be? And then finally, towards the end of my high school years, there's headlines coming out about Indiana Jones 4 is finally going to happen. And I don't know about you, Dan. I was a little skeptical. It's like, well, it's kind of been a long time at this point. What, What is this ultimately going to be? And then in 2008, my senior year of high school, we got Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I was a little bit like you. I, I wasn't quite sure what to think. I mean, I kind of felt like I was being primed for another Star Wars Episode One, which is that something that's exciting for what it is, but isn't something I'm excited to revisit and like doesn't end up fulfilling the legacy of the trilogy that inspired it. And I would say, actually, like the arc of this movie really does parallel the prequel trilogy because basically it got good reviews. It got a lot of buzz and then fans very quickly turned against it and mocked it relentlessly to the point that nuke the fridge became a phrase for something dumb that happens in a movie that shows that that movie franchise has gone to the dumps. Now I think couple things have changed over time. One is that legacy sequels are a dime a dozen. So it doesn't feel quite so sacrilegious because everything does it these days. You know, it's just the expectation. I think also it's, it's almost like if you had seen Temple of Doom and only seen Raiders before that, you probably would have been more sour on Temple of Doom at first. But then as you kind of accepted that it was something different, you become a little more fond of it. And I think that's kind of collectively happened with Indiana Jones 4, at least in the the circles I frequent. People are a little bit more generous towards Crystal Skull than they were right when it came out. And it's not really viewed as a travesty 
or even a bad movie. So I had kind of heard, read some defenses of it, and I actually rewatched it this year for the first time since it came out. I remembered some scenes and remembered the overall sensation of just kind of feeling meh about the movie from 08, but not hating it. And so I kind of went in uh, hopeful that I would like it. And it was a little bit of a mixed bag. I really was vibing with it for like 45 minutes. So kind of like Temple of Doom, it opens with a flip to the formula. So it starts with, you get this fun little intro that's like a hot rod race. And then where do you end up? But the warehouse of stored secrets from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I think in some ways this could have been like a cheap nostalgia pull. Be like, oh, remember this? We're going to bring this in now type of thing. But I think it actually works on a metafictional level because it it shows that this movie is just going to be kind of relentless in digging up old treasures without too much reverence. Like, I guess uh, pillaging what used to work, but in, in a new way and not really caring if they're breaking some sort of like sacred reverence towards the the originals because you even see the actual arc like come out of a box and tumble down or something like that and then my favorite scene comes after that where they have a chase around a 1950s college campus and you get all sorts of like 1950s iconography which i'm always a sucker for you got like the milkshake shop and uh greasers and all all sorts of whatever you think of 1950s you got bright colors too Then it eventually kind of turns into more of what you think of an Indiana Jones movie is going to be, where it's them chasing after an artifact. And um, this time we have Shia LaBeouf as Mutt Williams, who I don't think it's a secret at this point. He is Indiana Jones's son. And we have Karen Allen back as Marion, who is the love interest in Raiders, who I also kind of like having there just because it echoes the theme of we're revisiting the past and dealing with the complicated feelings we have about so much time having passed since then. And what are we doing with our lives now that I get from the opening of the movie as well. But I think it suffers from uh, an over-reliance on CGI and just not looking as good as the first three movies. And I think it really just feels kind of lazy in its storytelling in the second half where it's just another chase for an artifact with a supernatural ending. I don't mind that it's actually aliens. A lot of people seem bothered by that. Like, Oh, that's not what Indiana Jones is about. I don't really care about that. I think it's kind of cool. And I like that Indiana Jones can be in a lot of different tones and story settings. And honestly, I think it feels like what you would do if Indiana Jones was older and in the fifties instead of the forties is like, yeah, people would be talking about aliens and space age shit. So Overall, it's like a really mixed bag of stuff I like and stuff I don't like. And when you sum it all up, I'm kind of like right on the line of a four and a five. And I recently wrote a review of it and I gave it a low five, which is a good because I do kind of feel some fondness that it's doing some different stuff and some interesting stuff. And I think Spielberg is still on his game with some of this stuff, but still not with all of it. So, yeah, mixed bag for me. And also really like the casting of the villain, Kate Blanchett. She's absolutely terrific as the dominatrix Soviet agent. And I actually also quite like LaBeouf as the potential replacement to Indiana Jones. I would have watched a Mutt Williams film if they had made one. So what about you, Brian? Sorry, that was kind of a lot there, but go, go ahead. 
Well, yeah, I feel like there's potential to expand this out into a whole episode's worth of discussion. Because as I have said, I I mean, I spent years thinking about what this movie was going to be and, and kind of like coming up with fan canons and maybe feeling a little bit like these kids that we're ultimately going to be talking about here, where it was just kind of in my blood and in my brain a lot of the time. And I was underwhelmed. Uh, I've become a little more generous to it over time, and I'm going to give it a slightly different rating than you, but a lot of the same feelings in that I think my final judgment is I like the first half of this movie, broadly speaking. And um, just now when you were talking about the different things that it takes from Raiders, I realized it's kind of Raiders backwards, because you start in the Ark Warehouse and you end in Peru. Oh, man, you're right. That's clever. Which I literally just put together. And and yeah, it's it's literally like half and half of things I like and things that I don't, because I really hate the CGI. And I mean, it's just a, a, a sign of the times. Like, how else would you make it? But it just looks like a PS2 cutscene or something. Like the scene where Shia LaBeouf is swinging with the monkeys. And uh, that whole scene, that whole act where they're, like, fighting on the backs of those uh, ATV vehicles going through the jungle, it just all looks really, really fake. Um, it does have a gonculator, though, so that was cool. You know, they got that thing chopping down the logs as they go through. Uh, and I love all the stuff earlier than that. Even the nuke scene, I think, is perfect for the Cold War backdrop. I love how he finds himself in that town where it's all the mannequins and just putting together that it's all about to be destroyed. Um, the hot rod opening definitely feels like it's channeling American graffiti. It feels like vintage Lucas and Spielberg at times. I don't like that the opening shot is a CGI prairie dog. Prairie dogs exist. Just go get one. Like, it'd be, it would be easy to get that shot. Don't CGI it. They're like guinea pigs. E easy. It's not a dragon. It's a prairie dog. So very much a hodgepodge for me. I'm going to give it a four and maybe a low four. Um, because just, I feel like there's a good movie buried here. It's, you know, it's, it's underneath some dreck, but a lot that I like. Kate Blanchett, I like. Hate Mac, the British dude who is constantly double-crossing. It's just like, you never should have brought this guy along in the first place, let alone the third time he betrays you. It makes Indiana Jones look like an idiot. Very good call. Yeah. I like Mutt. I, Mutt doesn't bother me. The aliens, if you know anything about the Crystal Skulls, you knew going in there was a decent chance of aliens. That didn't bother me too much. Kind of a messy movie. I love the college stuff. The, the When he's like tearing around through the library on the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And he says to the kid, there's more to life than the library. Got to get out of the library to experience archaeology, which is kind of the crux of the whole series. I, I like that. So definitely highs and lows. My suggestion for making this movie better that I put in my review recently is that it feels like when you, you have the tearing up the warehouse in the opening scene and then tearing up the college campus, which previously had been kind of like the safe home base where you just sit and contemplate what you're going to do next. I, I feel like it was just kind of shredding the very fabric of Indiana Jones. And I like that. I like thinking about seeing these things in new contexts that 
make me be like, oh, wait, this is kind of like Indiana Jones, but it's upside down. And what you said about it being the reverse order of Raiders is, is interesting, too. I wonder if that was intentional. But I wish it had just done more and more like wacky reverse Indiana Jones stuff, like kind of like how they had Indiana Jones be evil for 10 minutes in Temple of Doom, have something like the aliens curse him and make a clone of him or like his whip comes to life and starts chasing after him or just some weird stuff that that really feels like Spielberg has given the middle finger to uh, Indiana Jones the same way he did in Temple of Doom. Yeah, I mean, they do say at the end that the aliens aren't from outer space. They're from the space between spaces. So these are actually interdimensional beings and not extraterrestrial. So we could have had a whole everything everywhere all at once with a bunch of indie-verse things going on by the end. Oh, man. If only. But then another 15 years went by, Dan, for all of us. And we got this year the Dial of Destiny coming to us from Disney rather than Paramount. And what did you think? Briefly. Yeah, sorry. We're running long here, but that's just how it is with Indiana Jones. But Brian and I saw this one in IMAX, and um, as we went out of it, I was feeling a little bit mixed and just really kind of right on the cusp of positive or negative. And then as I kind of sat with it, I just couldn't remember anything I really liked about it. Like, it didn't make me mad, but there wasn't any scenes that I was like, oh, that scene was awesome, except maybe the twist ending. But that was more so just the shock of it rather than the scene itself. And and a lot of things that I like were kind of mildly clever. But honestly, I just ended the more I thought about it, the more negative I felt on it. I feel like not having Spielberg is a, a disappointment. And I think it loses the sense of fun that Spielberg has with it. I forget the name of the director. It was James Mangold, the director of Kate and Leopold. So, sorry, my mistake. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, someone we featured here on the pod before. And I feel like he just didn't bring enough fun to it. And honestly, because I'm having trouble of like things that I'm fond for, it's one thing to like not make me too mad and it didn't make me too mad. But it's another thing to like not really get me excited about it. So I'm going to actually give it a high three which I think we have labeled as not, not good. So maybe eking into a four if I was feeling generous, but that's that's where I am right now. I don't hate it, but man, it just really feels unnecessary. And Harrison Ford is so old, it's kind of depressing. And I don't know, just uh, not doing it for me overall. What about you, Brian? Yeah, you know, the glow has kind of worn away. We watched this like two or three weeks ago, maybe a month and I came out of the theater with broadly positive feelings. Like, I was really ready to hate this, and I didn't hate it. But you're right that it's super forgettable. Like, I hardly remember anything about it. I remember that Antonio Banderas was in it for a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, He, he didn't do too much. I like the first, like, the 20-minute scene where it's essentially the train that we watched and for the podcast recently in that it's a Nazi art heist train at the end of the war. I, I thought there was some cool action in that. It was giving us like a little taste of what if they had decided to make Indiana Jones 4 in like 1993 instead of making Jurassic Park or whatever. But, you know, I think Lucas and Spielberg are ready to move on to other things. And that's why 
film history went in one direction and not the other. And of course, in 1993, we got not only Jurassic Park from Spielberg, we also got Schindler's List. So that's like a wild oeuvre for a single year from a single filmmaker. I know. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, just it feels very unnecessary. I think I'm going to land at three. Also, nothing in this was like offensive to me it wasn't like that is a hundred percent not indie but he's so old uh it was definitely a bummer that they went with the like he's washed up and he's got nothing in his life uh so that's kind of bleak i don't know the the tuk tuk chase where they're in those little like indian cars it just felt like spy kids 3d like they were sitting in little pods and getting artificially moved around the screen on a computer. Like, I didn't buy that they were in the same physical space. Ancient Greece was a good idea. Like, we had never seen him in Greece before, and that being, like, the cradle of Western civilization, the cradle of archaeology, and that it's got so much mythology associated with it, as well as history, felt natural. So I liked that. I liked that we did get a little more of the Nazis. I mean, that's one, three, and five. It kind of gives it some symmetry. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen is always good. I always loved seeing Mad Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah, I don't know. Pretty forgettable. Definitely not necessary. I'll give it a three, too. Okay. I'm glad we got to talk indie. I, I like it when we do, like, series uh, mini retrospectives. It's fun. So if that discussion was any indication we are indie fans and the series has left an impact on us and some other people who it left a strong impact on were some preteens living in mississippi in 1981 they saw raiders come out and were inspired to try their hand at recreating the movie and so they, they said about this in the summer of 1982, and what I asked Dan to watch was the product of their labors, which has been called Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation, which they finally, quote-unquote, finished in 1989, as well as a documentary about the project, which was put out in 2015, which talks about this project that they did, making the adaptation... And how it was kind of rediscovered around the turn of the millennium and came to greater knowledge of the public. Whereas it had kind of just been a VHS tape sitting on a shelf for like, I don't know, like 15 years. Like 1989 to 2002 or something. As well as getting this documentary made was part of this like Kickstarter project that the filmmakers now adults now firmly like middle-aged were uh putting together and one of the goals of this kickstarter was they were going to finish the film because the one scene that they had not figured out a way to do back in the 80s was the explosion of the flying wing the like interesting looking nazi aircraft that briefly has the arc aboard but is never able to leave the tarmac because it gets exploded and i think an additional layer on this that i think we'll probably talk a little bit more about as we get into the documentary itself but is that these people who made it 
had like drifted apart from each other's lives in some ways, not just drifted apart, but like had a falling out, you know? And then when the adaptation was rediscovered, that kind of brought them back together. So the filming of the last scene was not just the filming of the last scene, but also like a reunion of the cast and the makers of this adaptation that they made in the the eighties. Right. So I'm interested to talk about it. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. So I first became aware of the adaptation in high school. So maybe 2006 or 2007. I don't remember exactly where I heard about it. I might've read a cracked article or something, but it talked about, Hey, did you know that kids in the eighties did a shot for shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark and it took them eight years and so obviously that's intriguing to me. I got to see this thing. I think the article that I came across had a clip from their local news in Mississippi in 1989, interviewing them just after they wrapped on their last couple of shots, because the last stuff that they filmed was they got the assistance of a maritime museum in Mobile, Alabama where they have a battleship parked as well as a U-boat. And so they use this museum, this harbor, to get the scenes where briefly Indiana Jones has possession of the Ark and they've got it on this freighter ship. And then the Nazis surface on a U-boat to take it back. And then Indiana Jones kind of stows away aboard the U-boat. He's got to jump from one ship to the other. So this blew my mind. It's like, okay, they got some people on board with this to help them out. And this whole film strikes you with their resourcefulness and how they come up against a problem and they find a way to solve it, to get the shot. And it's like continually inspirational, at least for me. And it's interesting because obviously there's there's some shortcomings, um, some eccentricities of how they accomplish what they accomplish but it's always interesting i completely agree i think that if you're just looking at it from the perspective of these were like starting at i think they said they started at age 11 and then probably they got a little more sophisticated as they went through the years but still this was like before they graduated high school and to do the things they had to do yeah they, they had to do ingenuity on a lot of different layers They had to pull people together and get a whole bunch of friends in the same spot at a place and like actually shoot the movie. They had to actually have internalized the movie enough to know what they should even be doing. They have to bring together like people of the community to like get the resources they need to do it. And of course, just the technical stuff. It's like, how do you show a face melting? How do you show a, a, is it figs or dates, whatever it is flying in the air the poisoned one and how do you get a monkey to climb up on his shoulder and what where it really struck me was the credits because normally when you look at a credits for a movie it's like i don't know it's just name after name after name that everybody's paid by a studio but here it's like people who were just friends or like community members or like they called up a lo- local business and asked for something because they needed it or they drove out to this place and did this thing And that just, to me, really blew me away how much they actually accomplished. There's a saying that I've read, which is that 
most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And to me, that was this was kind of testament to that. It's like they worked hard at something for the better part of a decade. And just the sheer accomplishment of it is is astonishing. Um, I, I want to dig a little more into the underlying impulse to create this thing in a bit. But I will say, like, if you kind of take all of that as given that you are going to do this and you're a teenager and this might even be something you want to do, what they pull off is absolutely incredible. I'm glad to hear that. I feel the same way. So this thing has kind of gotten widely revered in obscure film circles, but that doesn't make it easy to find. You can't go on a streamer right now and watch this adaptation, at least, which also elevates its mystique. And especially, I mean, we did a while back discussion of one of Dan's favorites, Heavy Metal Parking Lot, where... You know, it's it's this ephemeral documentary that circulated on VHS tape, shot on VHS tape, circulated on VHS tape. And you had to be cool and underground and in the know to watch it. So for a while, that's how this film, the adaptation was. And when I read about it in high school, of course, I thought, I got to see this thing. I got to find it. I got to watch it. And how is that going to happen? I clued my friends in that I was looking for this. And then probably senior year, probably the same year that Crystal Skull came out, my friend Ben gave me a burned DVD with the adaptation on it. And I thought that was a great get. Like, this is an artifact that I'm going to share around and treasure. So at that point, I had seen it, probably around about 2008. And it was just a fun factoid. Never really thought I would learn any more about it. But then in 2015, I saw a Facebook post from the AFI Silver Center Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland, run by the American Film Institute, that they were going to be doing a screening on the big screen of the adaptation, and the guys were going to be there. Chris Strompolis and Eric Zala, the filmmakers behind the adaptation, two of the filmmakers behind it were going to be there doing a Q&A and that they were also going to screen this documentary about the making of. So I was geeking. I was like, I got to go see this. I need to be here to witness this. And I did go and my phone battery died. So I don't have any pictures, but trust that it happened that I spoke to these guys and I bought pretty much everything they had to sell. DVD of the adaptation, there's a book of, like, the storyboards that Eric Zala drew, planning it all out. Because that's another thing, is there was no home video release when they started on this thing. So, like, they had to go off of, you know, like, go to the theater a few times and take all the notes that you can. So pretty remarkable just in that regard. Uh, but I also bought, like, a poster. I bought a big poster and had them sign that. And then the next day I had a like a warning from my credit card company saying we've frozen your credit card because there was a $200 charge last night to something called Raiders LLC from <laughs> like an iPad square swipe. 
And so then I had to talk to my bank and say, no, I really did just give these guys $200, but... The bank clearly doesn't know you if they think that that's a suspicious purchase, bro. <laughs> yeah, so really good film-going experience. And now you're going to hear a little bit more about our thoughts about both of these movies, because I did ask Dan to watch both the adaptation and this documentary from 2015, which is called Raiders! Exclamation point, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. So the like key trio behind this film that put it together primarily in their hometown of Biloxi, Mississippi in the 80s were Eric Zala, who's credited as the director, and he also plays the villain Belloc. Chris Strompolis, who is the indie. He plays Indiana Jones. And a guy named Jason Lamb, who was the cinematographer and also did a lot of the special effects. So, I don't know if now is the time to say, I found it really weird that Jason Lamb's role is understated in the documentary. Like, this whole Kickstarter thing definitely seems to be a project of Zela and Strompolis leaving Lamb at the wayside. Yeah, that actually struck me when I was watching the credits, because when you watch the documentary, it's like, here's two guys, and then they roped in this third person to help them with effects. But so much of what's incredible about this movie is the effects. Well, and not just that, but he does, like, when you read the credits, it's more than just effects. It's, he, he shot it, too. It, like, like he, he got vehicles, he shot it. It's, he did so much stuff. A movie doesn't get made unless you shoot it. Yeah, he's kind of the equivalent of the producer, you know? Right. So I thought that was a little odd. I thought there was more going on behind the scenes that we weren't privy to. I absolutely think that, that there's bad blood there. Like, I got the sense that there's weird terms between everyone. Right, so he gets interviewed, but it's always separately from the other two. The other two are buddy-buddy the whole time. Even though, like, as you said, they have burned bridges in their pasts too so i don't know it was an interesting dynamic that in some ways overshadows the grandeur of this original accomplishment but and it even gets weirder like when you look at it today because they have th this website it's like uh raiders guys or something like that but basically it tells you about it and then they have links to each of their websites where so it's got a little bit of information about the project, but then they each kind of maintain their own thing and they each even have their own shops selling the stuff. So it really feels like they're still not on the same page together. You know, it's like, I don't know. There's and it sounds like they kind of all come from difficult childhoods, which I want to talk a little bit more about, too, because I think that to some extent drives the impulse to make this thing. Yeah. So they made this thing on the Gulf Coast in Mississippi. Uh, on the DVD, there's like a photo gallery of them making the film, but also other stuff, other stuff in their lives. And I think a lot of it was done at Eric's mom's house, which they show was like wiped off the map by Hurricane Katrina. Like it was just leveled. So like a lot of these locations that they shot are are gone but that was the area, and they 
traveled a little further afield for things they needed to get. But like Mobile, Alabama is not that far away where they shot on the ships. And they said on the commentary, which I did listen to, that the most complex shoots were the ones at the archaeological dig out in the desert because it was like this construction pit, kind of like the first season of Parks and Rec. And what made it so complicated was just that they had to get so many people together because, of course, you got all the various diggers and all the Nazis and all the equipment and stuff. And just that the characters spend a lot of time there. But, yeah, all kind of in that area and not a super wealthy area. I was also thinking a little bit of the Goonies, which I think they name drop in the documentary. That they kind of identified with the Goonies. Part of what facilitated this project was that one of the guys, their stepdad, ran a local TV station. So they could go in and use the edit decks. And like that's how they did the text on the, the credits and stuff. And they had cameras at their disposal. Right. I feel like this would have been a lot harder if... Like if if you literally were just picking up a movie camera and had no access to either experience or resources, I feel like you couldn't even do what they did here. But that's kind of again, that's what is impressive is like they have they figure out how to get access to it. They use the fact that they have family connections and they they kind of pull it together. Right. And like even in the off season, so they shot this during the summer vacations, but uh, they were working on it even in the off time, like doing the planning and the arrangements in the commentary, which, of course, is just Eric Zala and Chris Trompolis. They were talking about how, like, during the school year, Eric Zala would be building, like, sets and props and then sending pictures to Chris, who was off at boarding school. And I got the sense, uh, this isn't spelled out, but I think Chris was probably sent away for, like, being a troublemaker. He just, he seems like a kind of rough-and-tumble guy. I don't know, he lives a little on the edge. Doesn't he admit to, like, crystal meth addiction? Is he the one who does yes. in the documentary? Yes, he does. Yeah. And um, I think Chris's dad talks about... Eric being like a positive influence throughout Chris's life, like kind gotcha. of the, the grounded one. Um, and I mean, you see that when they're like in their forties that Eric Zela, you know, has a family and a steady job and Chris Trumpolis doesn't seem to. It had me thinking a little bit, Dan, it, what if, <laughs> what if we come back to the podcast in 15 years or had made something like this 10 years ago. I don't know. The dynamic, I was wondering a little bit about it, um, where one just has his life a little bit more together. But also, I thought Chris Strompolis kind of looked like a Stalkup brother. I don't know if you saw any resemblance. Oh, interesting. I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess I can see that a little bit. He's got kind of the dark hair like us, and the face is, it's a little bit like me and my... My brothers, me and my brothers have a distinct look. We 
I mentioned last episode that um, I had a death in the family. So we had a lot of like family events and we had many instances of someone walking up to one of the brothers. And this would be like someone we haven't seen in years, you know, because they're coming to funeral, they're coming to a wake or something like that. And coming up to one of us and thinking we're the other, basically. It's like, so we all look kind of similar, but I thought he was a pretty good actor too. Like in the, when he was a teenager, he, what he made me think of is a little bit is the guy who started Max Magician <laughs> just because he was clearly an amateur and clearly didn't know how to quote unquote act and maybe didn't have like a real X factor, but still had some confidence and charisma and was like, you could see why this is someone you would want to be the guy who's on camera to some extent. Right. He's definitely the best actor who's here, like by yeah. far. Uh, and uh, he confidently delivers the dialogue, which is sometimes complicated. Like something that doesn't get talked about a lot is Raiders of the Lost Ark has some pretty dense exposition scenes. Right. There's there's multiple scenes where the characters, especially early on, just kind of sit down and talk about the stuff that we're going to see come to pass later on amidst the action. Like, mm -hmm. what is the Staff of Ra? And what is the headpiece of the Staff of Ra? You know, what is the Well of Souls? Just spelling it out in a lecture hall at the start. And he keeps the energy up, and you just sense that there was general enthusiasm for what they were doing here. I'm going to do a pivot on here. Maybe this is where you were leading. Maybe not. And if you want to defer this, that's fine. But what do you think of the fact that they made this? It it's, it's like, why would someone, I don't know. I guess let me just kind of explain my thought process. So I was like, okay, why this seems insane. Why would you remake a movie that already exists? Like, why not make your own thing? Why not craft your own voice? And then I was like, well, honestly, if they had done that, maybe they made a movie. They probably wouldn't persist on it for eight years. And they certainly wouldn't have been discovered and celebrated and got to meet Steven Spielberg. But even still, like the big victory is that they got to shake the hand of Steven Spielberg. So it's like, man, if they had like actually applied themselves to real art, it would be even more depressing. And then it's like, why even make art? If you're it's just going to be a nothing in the end, it's like even if you were the best case scenario, unless you're the one in a million, you're just going to be it's just going to be a forgotten thing. And my headspace is already a little existential right now. But like this, I don't know, this kind of sent me on a, a spiral of like, why the hell would, would you make this? Brian, would you make this? Is this a worthwhile thing to do with your life? is worth asking these questions like i could see myself starting on this and not getting very far at all and then nothing coming of it which on the one hand you could say maybe that is pretty sad and pathetic but like you wouldn't sink eight years into it right you would you would stop short i mean i they have such stick-to-itiveness 
Like, the perseverance is incredible. Also, they talked about in the documentary that, like, the first three years kind of didn't count because they were, like, shooting it wrong. And so then they subsequently kind of restarted. And then at one point there was, like, a lapse because they had this falling out and they didn't shoot anything for a little while. And then in 1989, Last Crusade came out and they were like, well, remember that thing we've been working on? We should probably finish. So, I mean, yeah, they were driven. They were driven to make this thing. And in the documentary, I think it's Jason gets interviewed and he says something to the effect of why work so hard on something that's not your own? Like, especially in 2014, why come back and and do this this reunion? Why not be focusing your life on actually making something that's yours? And I don't really have an answer for that. Uh, something, this is inside baseball, perhaps. But, so I did a public access TV show for nine years. And kind of gradually realized that nobody was watching. And up to a point, I was happy to be doing it just to be making something that was meaningful to me. And then I thought realistically maybe i should be spending my life on something that means something to more than one person and so now i'm helping co-host a podcast that's meaningful to two people dan <laughs> and at least for now that's enough for me um we just got a one-star review from somebody the other day and I, I shared that with Dan to kind of stick in his craw because I knew it would bother him because I always get the sense that Dan is kind of trying to do community outreach and trying to make this thing meaningful to more than just two people. And on the one hand, I don't know, I've always thought that that's kind of a fool's errand, but it has been bearing fruit. We have got half a dozen people in the Discord. But these are questions that you think about when you're doing very, very small scale creative output yeah i mean our like between the reviews i write and the podcast i basically don't have hobbies or like if i do pick up a hobby for a week like recently i was playing magic the gathering on my computer like i just i don't write reviews for a week or i don't edit the podcast for a week so like that really that and taking care of my family are like what I do and then my job of course are what I do with my life and like I don't know I've had moments where I'm like is this really what I want my life to be like do do I want to keep making writing reviews that get you know each one gets read by me and enjoyed by me and then like if I'm lucky a couple other people a podcast that gets listened to by a couple dozen people max when it's like I'm pouring my life spirit into this, like I have a limited amount of time in my life. I don't know. And the answer so far has been yes, because I do like creating things. I, I feel better having created something than having scrolled through my phone for an hour. So like I could, you know, maybe if I had another quote unquote real hobby where when I was done, I felt like I had achieved something, then that would be a replacement. But I don't want to replace it because I both enjoy what I do and I feel like I've created something. And I don't know. I I mean, the one star review that our podcast got, I actually I don't really care that much about. I thought about it a little bit. It's like I, I almost wonder about the person who gives a one star review. It's like, 
you listen to enough to know that you really don't like it. Or you just are the type of person who is trigger happy on one star reviews. And if you're the latter, I don't care what you think. And if you're the former, why did you keep listening and why did you not just move on? So and plus, I've been I was the columnist in my school newspaper and I wrote a blog for 10 years. So like I'm no stranger to people not vibing with what you create. So I think if I were younger and softer, that would have bothered me a lot more than it actually did. But I don't know, coming right on the heels of this, it's also like we have now seven reviews on our Apple page. We've been doing this for we're going to be coming up on three years very soon. And it's like, okay, so that means a grand total of seven people probably out of those like two or three of them are people who I literally asked or who are like already friends of ours to put a review on. It's like, you know, if the goal is to connect with other people, then clearly it's not an efficient use of time, but I don't know. I guess I get at least some satisfaction out of like the thing when we do the podcast and when I write my reviews and it's we're, we're commenting on other stuff, but we're still making our own thing. And this thing that they made, that's already a movie. It, they just they're they're making it themselves. Like, I guess it's cool to have made something, especially something that people are going to see and appreciate. And like you also know that like, hey, I, I now have created this thing that is it's done and I can look back at it and I made it. But like also, yeah, I mean, it just to me, it's like a coping mechanism to some extent of like confronting the real world. They like withdraw into this very specific it's not just movies in general that they love. It's it's this one specific movie that they're like vacuumed into like a black hole. And I think the movie or the documentary touches on this a little bit that like it becomes an unhealthy obsession for them. Like, yeah, when they were young, part of it was like dealing with the like something to take their mind off of the divorce or their family problems. But then even when we see them X years later, I forget how many years later uh, making the plane scene, we see one of the guys, I think it's it's Eric. What's his last name? Yeah, Eric Zela is like on the phone, like with his boss and is like, yeah, his boss is just exasperated by this project. And it's clear that like this is like a demon in his life as much as it is a triumph, you know? Yeah, I thought those scenes were interesting. I mean, he's got a steady job and it's not as like an accountant. He's a game designer. Like, he works for this, like, video game firm, which seems like it's a pretty awesome job. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it, uh, like everything, is once it becomes your livelihood, it can run you down. Like, when that's the thing you have to be doing all the time. But, uh, like, in the final postscript of the documentary, it says he quit his job to join Chris filmmaking or something. And it's like, that, that seems irresponsible. I don't know if I would recommend that course of action, Eric. But I'm glad that we've done a bit of soul searching here. Always good when we can do that on the goods. I do want to talk a little bit about the striking features of this adaptation that they put together. Sure. Like what it actually is. So it's really faithful. I mean, everywhere that they could possibly get the shot, they got the shot. And the, like, 
verisimilitude of the set design that they were able to accomplish strikes you again and again and again. It's like you're waiting for it if you have Raiders committed to memory like I do. And I said it about Toy Story 2, but Raiders of the Lost Ark is absolutely one that I could, if not just read you from memory the whole script right now, if it were playing, I could, like, mouth the dialogue before it came. I have a couple movies like that. Like, that thing you do, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, I could do that. And I could almost, that's one I could almost just play on my, in my head. And so they take this to like a new level. One of the things that really impressed me in the, in the documentary when they were talking about when they first got started is like what you were saying is they didn't have a DVD or a VHS. Well, obviously not a DVD because it was the eighties, but they didn't even have a VHS of it. And so it reminds me of the old anecdotes about Mozart, like how Mozart could hear a symphony one time and then go and transcribe the entire thing. But they were talking about how one of the two, I think it was Eric, he saw it and then he was like recreating the storyboards just from having seen it a couple times in theaters. And that to me is like, it's like a savant thing. It's kind of crazy that he could he could do it to that level. So I think he's got like some sort of gene that he, it's, it's like almost photographic memory, but it's like the movie version of that where you can just like play through something in your head and like see it as you saw it when you watched it. It's very impressive. Yeah, really amazing. Apparently he also took a tape recorder in and recorded the audio so that that way they could, you know, have the dialogue down and also use snippets of the music. But yeah, really impressive just that they were able to do all these shots without a visual reference and it's definitely something that takes the oomph out of them doing it in 2014. It's like, well, now you can just have the DVD there on a screen like while you're making it. So that is impressive. But like this opening scene where he's going through the temple to get the idol. I mean, they've got the spiders and the boulder and the little thing that goes down into the pedestal when the when the bag of sand weighs too much. And it looks pretty good. I mean, they've got like that bottomless pit that Indiana Jones jumps across. He kind of lands on his chest and is scrabbling with his arms to hang onto the vine. And they have all the angles like they got the low angle down in the pit looking up at him. And it just continually impresses. Even if, like, the sound recording is not very good. Yeah, that was, to me, the thing that really stuck out as dated and hard to watch, is that it's got this nonstop hiss, which it makes sense if you're just, like, on a dusty old video camera, VHS camera, but that kind of drew me out more than anything else, particularly because the, the, the timbre of it changes from scene to scene. It's like, it'll be louder here and you can hear the voices worse, but then the next scene, it'll be a little bit more clear, but then the next scene, it'll be really distant and hard to hear what they're saying. Like the volume levels, I mean, they, you know, they're kids, so I'm not holding them against it, but that was to me even more than the visuals. It was the noise and it's such a sound focused movie. I mean, we talked about John Williams, but um, was this wasn't a Ben Burt movie, was it? It was. Oh, it was. Okay, so I mean, you know, you're having incredible sound effects. I was gonna say, if it wasn't, it's to the level of Ben Burt with just uh, terrific sound effects throughout. 
Yeah, the one I always think of is the the lid coming off. It's either the lid of the Ark or the lid they take off of the thing that they pull the Ark from that's in the Well of the Souls is a toilet tank lid. And so whenever I take the lid off a toilet tank, I hear that sound. It's like, <laughs> it's like a scraping of, of ceramic. And I always think of that. But like, what was your, what was the scene that you most had a wow moment, Dan, in this adaptation? Um, so I would say the two things that really blew me away were both things that I was kind of primed to look for because they had talked about it in the documentary and I watched the documentary before the adaptation. One of them was the use of fire. So particularly in Marion's bar um, early in the movie, there's a huge fire that burns down the uh, bar in the movie. And there's actually like a considerable amount of fire that they were like teenagers dealing with. And they have a good anecdote where they were filming one day and one of the kids got burned or almost got burned and a parent heard about it and said, you need to get supervision. And so some person they knew they got to watch him, but the person they knew was like, had been in one of the Romero movies as a zombie. And so he was already kind of like a wild type and was like helping them get more and more fire there. And I thought that was pretty funny, but that one really impressed me. And then the second one is the truck scene, which is to me, one of the great action scenes of all time, the truck chase. And they're like dangling from cars and like, I don't know, like inches from wheels that could crush them to death, you know? And I was like, man, if I was a parent, I would not want them to be doing this. Now that I'm a dad, I think those things. And but just really impressed that they like pulled it off. And they talked about the worst injury was actually not caught on film, but they were making a face cast. I forget exactly what scene it was for, but they got the wrong kind of material for the face cast and it like burned his skin. It was like industrial strength or something like that. Right. It had like a heating agent to make it dry faster. And so it was stuck to his face and then got hot. This is crazy. Yeah. One of the things in the photo gallery on the DVD was a little tiny blurb on like a police blotter from 1985. <laughs> 15 year old hospitalized for burned face. Yeah, definitely. It's those two scenes for me as well. Uh, the truck chase and the fiery bar, which just make you like shocked that they did this and didn't die. Uh, but also really cool. I love the opening of the arc at the end because they managed to do the ghosts. Like it, it's some simple green screen process, but it looks good. Like I, I thought that was cool. Also the scene where they're, so they've brought the arc up and then they have the, the whole interaction with the airplane and the Nazis are able to like regain the arc briefly, or maybe it's before it's before they put it on the plane. It's in between because it just changes hands so many times, but like at, at one point the Nazis have the arc and they throw Indiana Jones and Marion back down in the hole in the, the Egyptian well of the souls where it had been and they seal them up in the tomb there. And so they're trapped down with all the snakes. This is when there's the snakes. 
and the like rappelling down into the well of the souls looks pretty good and you got to think about that it was all done in like a laundry room like a laundry room in a crawl space down in his mom's basement and just that they were able to get the camera where they needed to to make it look like he's going down a rope and then climbing up a big jackal statue i thought was pretty impressive you know when you put it that way that's a pretty good point that is uh it is pretty cool i i think you're onto something that the fact that this is like you know it's just kids with a video camera and a can of gasoline somehow makes the fire feel all the more dangerous than like bigger flames in a hollywood movie you know in some ways that enhances the sense of danger in the film rather than reducing it despite it being smaller scale absolutely and like even when workarounds are forced like they couldn't a hundred percent do the original thing the things they come up with to solve those problems tend to be charming like instead of the hydroplane at the start that whisks indiana jones away from the angry natives they have like a motorboat that's out there in the in the creek and they jump into that and tear off or the big one is they couldn't get a monkey. So instead of a monkey, they used one of their dogs. But like, this is a very pliable dog. Yeah. And obedient, it would seem. He's able to carry it around on his shoulders and stuff. And it, it yeah, is just along for the ride. Another thing we haven't said yet is that because this took them so long to make, the actors change age from scene to scene, <laughs> which sometimes is is pretty striking. Um, Chris Strompolis also, like, gains and loses quite a bit of weight from scene to scene. Yeah, in, like, kind of a normal puberty sort of way, I would I would say, but yeah. And yeah, it'll be interesting because like we'll we'll see them as as 18 year olds and then it'll jump back and suddenly they're 12 again. Yeah, actually, you know what it was even more than the the look of them is it was the voices because obviously their voices drop sometime between the age of 11 and 18. And some scenes it would be like an, an adult's voice and some scenes it would be a kid's voice up like this and it would just be one scene to the next. And it actually made me burst out laughing a couple times when, like, someone would deliver the line, but all of a sudden it was, like, a 10-year-old. Because I think one of them had their little brother there, too. Yeah. The the biggest one for me is Marion, because in her first couple scenes, she has, like, this short, frizzy 80s updo for her hair. Like, Molly Ringwald or something. And then... In the later scenes, she's got more like in the movie, like the longer, the longer dark hair. Yeah. And I think when they did the reunion shot, because Marion is obviously in the plane scene, I think they got the original Marion to come back. Yes, that is the coolest thing about the airplane scene for me is that they had. So Eric Zala as Belloc, Chris Strompolis as Indiana Jones. Obviously, they're on board. This is their whole brainchild. But they had uh, Angela Rodriguez come back as Marion. And, like, even the guy who is Dietrich, the, like, the Nazi leading the dig. Oh, that's right. He's notable only because, like, his head implodes at the end. He's the one who has the vacuum death. Uh, he is still the same guy, apparently. 
So they actually did like reach out to the same people and they filmed it in essentially the same place. I think this is called Lazana, Mississippi. So like they didn't go out to Hollywood to shoot this 2014 scene. But the reason that this scene feels like a betrayal to me is that they hired a professional cinematographer. They just paid some new camera guy to shoot it and blew off Jason. And that's not the same thing. It's not going to be the same project then. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because it loses the homemade feel of it. You know, they, they still recreated it, but you can't say it was all homemade at this point. Right. right that's my thought. Okay. But so they finished this adaptation, finished it pre-airplane scene back in 1989. And the VHS sat on the shelf for over a decade. I guess a, a few of the friends maybe had copies. And so it was circulating somewhat and somehow made its way into the hands of horror director Eli Roth. So he of what I think he made Hostel, he made that Green Inferno movie, and he's one of the Inglorious Bastards, is how I know Eli Roth. But he had this thing and started letting, you know, bigger wig Hollywood people know about it. And kind of its debut on the, the world stage is that Eli Roth put it in the hands of this guy named Harry Knowles, who is a blogger who runs a site called Ain't It Cool News, and who also had a film festival that he ran that was kind of devoted to weird, under-the-radar media. And almost on a whim, they slotted this thing into the film festival. And then everybody wanted to know, what? What? What is this? <laughs> and hearing about the making of the adaptation, as well as this discovery, is definitely the whole reason to watch this documentary, I thought. Maybe you'll have other thoughts on that. But, like, that's what is going to hook you in. Yeah, I think um, it's... It's almost like the um, the documentary kind of downplays the discovery or like I feel like you could have framed it entirely differently and really focused on the the discovery arc of it, because that's not really the main focus. I think the the documentary suffers a little bit because it's like it has too many objectives and it's kind of like um, throwing a lot of stuff at you at once. But I think you're right that that's among the more interesting material is that everyone had moved on from their lives. And then this just kind of gradually came to the surface, like literally decades later. Yeah. And the way this documentary is structured is it's got kind of two parallel plots. And one is telling the story of the making of the adaptation and the rediscovery. And the other plot is present day 2014 so 25 years later, and they reunite to shoot this Kickstarter-funded airplane scene. And so we're intercutting between the two. And sometimes it works, and sometimes I thought it was kind of a distraction. I didn't care as much about the modern stuff, although maybe it gives some insight into just how much this project has dominated their lives. Yeah, I think... 
it suffers a little bit from what I call the magazine test, which is would you get much more out of this reading a 10 page magazine article than you would actually watching the documentary? And I would say most of it not really is the answer. It's like you could have learned the story without hearing the talking heads talk about it. I mean, in that regard, it's the stuff about making the making it is cool. The one moment where my breath was caught was when the plane blew up and the effects guy that they had there who had been kind of intermittently throughout the documentary saying, now you guys got to be careful and follow my directions because this could be unsafe. And then when they do the big explosion, it doesn't go quite right. And so he goes out to see why it didn't go quite right, which feels like a rookie mistake. I feel like you got to know that it's still live stuff there, but he just runs out there. And of course it, not of course, but then it blows up much bigger moments later and he gets kind of knocked backwards by the force of it. And for a moment, it looks like he's very badly hurt um, and like everybody's rushing out there and like the camera's on and like the guy holding the camera is like running up there, too, and like looking down. I'm like, this is not a staged thing. Did did we just see someone die on camera or something? I don't think would have been released if that had been what actually happened. But it turned out he was OK. He just kind of got shaken up. And then his first line is, did you get the shot? Which is kind of funny. But I thought that was a little bit interesting, but I also, you're right. I was a little, I didn't care quite so much about like, it's really almost half the documentary is about the making of this last scene. When I think that material is just a little less interesting. Yeah. Some additional things that interested me include that they got John Rice Davies, Sulla to be one of the prominent talking heads in this film. I liked that. I think he's always down to participate in indie-adjacent media. Harder to get the other stars, but John Rice davies is down. Uh, he was really articulate, too. He narrates the pinball machine, for instance. Ah, oh, interesting. And he was in Indy 5, right? That's right. I also thought it was cool that they have some footage from the making of the actual Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like... Spielberg working especially on his desert scenes. There's some some behind the scenes stuff of him struggling in the desert that's then intercut with these guys struggling in the desert. So that worked pretty well. Any other thoughts you had about the dynamic between these filmmakers? Dan, Zela, Strompolis, Lamb, this team. What what did you think of them? Their personalities? I guess when I like documentaries about like weird, obscure things, I like the way that it focuses in on specific human elements. Like when we talked about uh, Rock of Fire Explosion, just the way that it, it focused basically on two characters that have different roles and you just appreciate and understand new layers of them as the movie goes along. I feel like this one didn't go quite as deep on that in terms of understanding the people. And I honestly kind of got the impression that I personally, I don't know if, which of them I would want to hang out with. What's the name of the third guy who got kind of downplayed? Jason. I thought he seemed like a funny guy. Absolutely. He seems like the, the one that I would want to know more from. And I was really disappointed that he, of course, wasn't there at the screening that I went to. It was just the other two guys. But yeah, I mean, in some ways, what I found kind of interesting is that they ended up not being very... I don't know how to say this without being too condescending. 
like not particularly special people. They're just people. And you, you're not friends, often friends with the people that you were friends with when you're 11 years old, when you're 40 something. And so, yeah, these people were very different people and had drifted and had lived totally different lives. And they brought kind of different things to the point that you can see why it worked when they were making the project. Like they all kind of had different strengths um, and different personality types that seemed compatible in the moment, but not the kind of thing where you'd be buddies when you're 40 years old or whatever. So I don't know. That's kind of what I was thinking. It is kind of wild that they're so bound together by this project that it's kind of like made them have twin lives, at, at least interconnected lives way beyond when you might expect. The The big thing for me that I, I think should be said is there is a talking point that Chris, the guy who plays Indiana Jones, says at one point he stole Eric's girlfriend just to see if he could. And the way he says it so nonchalantly, it's like, dude, you're like, as cool as you think you are, you're a meth head and get the fuck off my set. It's like, no, that we don't come back from that. I don't care about, you know, we, we rolled credits already. We're done. So, yeah, I don't know exactly what. I guess uh, they just believed in this project so much that they're willing to put aside bad blood. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. It's like, could Eric Zala just have been the guy because he was the one who seemed to be like the main driving force of it rather than the two guys together? It's interesting that they ended up pairing up on it because it's like they it could have been just him or it could have been all three of them. But instead, they ended up with just two of them who were kind of the figureheads of it. So I don't know. But I am glad that you brought up the Rock of Fire documentary, because I was absolutely thinking about that this time, where it's a story about people who did something that was cool in the 80s, and then it dominated their lives, and they haven't really done anything since. Good point. <laughs> yeah. So very much that same vibe in some ways, although, I don't know, it's just not quite as compelling to me as the Rock of Fire documentary. Agree on both fronts. Like, I think there's just... I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I like the visuals in the Rock of Fire film. But of course, we did a whole episode about why why we both liked that one. So, Dan, are you ready to talk about, is it good? You got other talking points burning a hole in your brain? No, let's do it. All right. So, is it good is our signature section where we rate on a scale of eight from one out of eight. Very not good to eight out of eight. Toward a good. And where does it fall on that spectrum for you, Dan? Let's start with the adaptation and then talk about the documentary. Raiders exclamation point. So Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation is to me, it's extremely difficult to rate because it's like not even its own thing. It's I mean, it's a shot for shot remake of a movie, you know. So like, what are you even rating here? You know, I guess I'm rating the experience of watching it or because, I mean, it's it's a lesser version of an all-time great movie that's not even unabashedly just doing exactly what that movie does, which doesn't mean I don't appreciate it, but it's just kind of hard to like think about how you rate this. It's like a novelty almost, you know? So I feel like if I'm going to give it a rating, which we're going to because that's what we do on this podcast. We're raters of the Lost Ark. 
is that it's either going to be a, a five, a good, or a six, a very good. I guess I'm going to give it a good because it's like a cool experience, but I don't feel like I'm ever going to want to go watch it again now that I've seen it. Like I maybe would go listen to the commentary. I didn't do that yet just to kind of hear more about the making of it. But like the thing itself, I don't feel like I need to go and watch again, but I did appreciate it as an experience too, you know? So it's kind of in this weird corner pocket of movies that I can't quite know how to rate, but let's go with good. A five out of eight on this. What about you, Brian? I've got to give this one a seven. I'm blown away by this accomplishment. It's held back because the sound recording is not good. Otherwise, I mean, I might be in eight territory if it were just a hair more polished. But it's hard to say because that's part of the charm. Is just what were they able to accomplish back in the 80s? And I do kind of think it should have stayed there. It's weird having the new footage shot by somebody else shoehorned in. To me, the DVD that I have from 2008 is going to kind of be the true cut. So what does it do when it's the plane scene? Does it just skip over it? I think it just skips over it. Because if you think about it, like the status quo doesn't change in that scene. It's like the, the box gets put on the plane and then the plane gets blown up. So then the box gets put on a truck. It's like you don't really need that scene. Just have the box get put on a truck instead of on the plane to begin with. That is an Indiana Jones thing in general is like it doesn't move in a straight line. It's like there's lots of resetting stakes, resetting stakes over and over again to the point that I actually occasionally get a little annoyed with it. And the in Raiders, by the way, is the one that this time bothered me. It's like they're pulling the arc out, but then like they had this whole thing where they got it out, but then the Nazis just see them pull it out. So it's like, oh, well, I guess the Nazis got it. That to me is the most ridiculous thing that they find out the Nazis are digging in the wrong place. So, okay, just go away for a while until they give up, then come back. But no, they immediately start digging. Like, it seems like 200 feet away from where the Nazis are digging. And they're just digging there while the Nazis are out and about. And very strange. Like, how do they think this is going to work? I don't know. It is it is strange, yeah. But I think this is a, a pretty remarkable achievement. You may not feel the same fire behind... Why would they decide to do this? But, like, it's, it's a cool filmmaking exercise. I do think shot-for-shot shot remakes are a, a good thing to undertake... Maybe not at this scale. This is like a ton of work. But even just to try, like, you see a, a style, a music video style or a trailer style. And to then try to recapture that can be good practice. But at that point, it's like building your own skills and building your own taste and your tool set. It's like not the end product itself that you're necessarily valuing. Like, I don't disagree with that. I think it's a cool thing to do. But like what's the point of having done that? Or what's the point of the end product of that thing, I guess? Fair. Maybe. It's an unanswerable question. Exactly. Exactly. The documentary interrogates that a little bit, but doesn't really come down. It's a hard thing to answer conclusively. I'd be curious what other people think about this. So if you're listening to this, you made it this far, come to thegoodsfilmpodcast.com, join our Discord, and tell us 
what the hell is the point of a project like this, of a shot for shot remake of something that's a facsimile just because you love the thing? And I don't know, what would you feel about this? How would you feel if this was your whole life? I'd be curious what, what people think of this. So please join us there. And now, Dan, the documentary from 2015. Could you put a rating value on that? Sure. So I'm going to go ahead and give this one a four, a good-ish, because um, it's kind of a good intro to the project, and you kind of get the context for it and the personalities. I almost wish I had just hit play on the adaptation and not known the context and just known it was kids making a thing. And maybe, yeah, the DVD-R version that doesn't have the plane scene in it or something and then go and watch the documentary in the plane scene or something because I wonder how that would have shaped my perception if would I have been more blown away or would I have been more disconnected from it I really can't say because I didn't do it but it gives you an overview of the project and you get to know the people and some of the things are interesting but it really feels like there's not really an overall mission statement for the documentary itself and too much of it is just kind of recap that didn't need to be a documentary itself and I just don't quite know exactly what it is that I'm taking away from it, but it's entertaining. It's interesting and uh, it's time well spent. So I'm going to say high end four on this uh, good ish. What about you, Brian? So pretty similar for me, but I'll say it just ekes into four territory because it leaves a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. Like I have a lot of respect for the original project that they did but then they haven't amounted to too much since then, it seems. And I, I mean, that can be interesting. We both really liked the Rock of Fire film. Time goes on. We're maybe not meant to dwell in one headspace forever. But I really like what we see of behind the scenes of the making of the, the 80s project. And if nothing else, this airplane scene continues the idea that their age jumps around, right? <laughs> That's true. It's like the most extreme example of that. Suddenly they're 25 years older and then 25 years younger. So it's not completely out of place. Well, Dan, thank you for watching along with me the adaptation as well as the documentary explaining the adaptation as well as Indiana Jones 5. A lot of ground to cover, and now we've we've done it. We've done our own little digital globe trotting. There we go. So I guess it is on to me to pick the next entry in our movies about making movies month, Brian. So I will admit I'm kind of at a weird place where I have like nine things that I want to pick, and I think I know what I want my grand finale to be, my last pick. But that still leaves me two intermediate selections if we go as long as we've been casually talking about going with this a sort of double theme month. Right. So we're thinking, yeah, double month is what feels kind of comfortable. So um, then I guess we kind of, we did a comedy. We did a, an action tent poll. We did now here is like a... a a fan thing, a, a homemade thing with a documentary about it. I'm going to go in another direction. I'm going to have us watch a melodrama, a 50s melodrama. We're going to watch the 1954 adaptation of A Star is Born. This is the Judy Garland one. And was that the second one? I think so. 
I actually need to read up on it, to be honest. Um, it's not the first one. The first one is 37, if I'm not mistaken. So I think this was the second one. There was also, I think it was 76. There was a Barbara Streisand one, right? Yeah. Yeah. But and then there was the remake not too long ago with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga that, that I saw. That's the only Star is Born that I've seen. So this will be my first time with it. It's um, Judy Garland is the star here. I don't know if I already said that. And I think James Mason plays the the old star or, or someone. I know he's in the cast. I'm not sure what his role is, but yeah. So a Star is Born. We'll see how that goes. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Have you seen this one before? I have not seen any version of A Star is Born before. I have listened to a podcast that's all about film history that did an episode devoted to the various stars are born. Yeah. If you're feeling so inspired, choose one other one to watch. I'm going, if I can carve out the time, I'm going to, like, I kind of, it's almost like a slice of, like, what was, how did we view the entertainment industry in each of these decades, you know? So I might revisit some other ones. I don't know if I'll hit all of them, but I might see if there's any other ones I want to hit. But yeah. Awesome. Yeah, this should foment some good discussion. And I'm looking forward to it. I definitely have some ideas burning in my brain for upcoming weeks. So I'm glad that we're doing this month. I'm glad that we had our sit down, our powwow, and determined that we're going to stretch the bounds of what a month can be. (laughs) <laughs> mams movie about movies about making movie months we could just make that the theme of our podcast and we could probably go for multiple years for Brian. quite a while yes well thanks dan i know this was a little bit of a long one we had a lot of ground to cover but it's been fun hope you enjoyed it listeners and we hope you listen again bye everyone bye.